Second Samuel chapter 6, we're going to read the entire chapter and then we're going to uh, work through this today. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts with the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins, each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. David returned to his, to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today and covering himself today before the eyes of the servants, his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Father, we want to be worshipers of you. Father, we're convinced today that you are what we need. Your presence, God, is, is the best thing. Lord, we want it. So, Father, help us to seek it according to your word, according to Jesus, our atoning sacrifice. Father, as we, as we receive it, let us be glad. Father, give us hearts that celebrate who you are in our lives. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. This is probably our last sermon in uh, this, this series of David. And so uh, as I thought about David as the warrior king, as the champion of Israel, as the friend of Jonathan, as the grace giver to Mephibosheth, as uh, uh, the one in temptation, the one who's restored, uh, all of those things, I felt like before we're done with this series, we really need to do a sermon on David the worshiper, okay? Now, the reason I think that's so important is because I really believe as you look at the life of David, okay, the most impactful thing about this guy's life is not his giant killing, it's not his warring, it's not the king of Israel, it is his worshiping, okay? It is his worshiping. As you look in your Bible, as you open it up right to the middle, you're probably going to fall into the Psalms. The Psalms are the hymn book, the prayer book of the saints, the prayer book, the hymn book of the church. And third, I think 73 of those Psalms of the 150 are ascribed right there in your Psalms to David. Okay? A couple more we learn from the New Testament writers that David wrote them. There are 34 others that we don't know who wrote them. There's no title given. They're not assigned to anybody. And it very well could have been that David wrote some of those. So at least half of your psalms were written by this, this king, this shepherd king, David. Now, as you look through those, one, things become, one thing becomes incredibly apparent, and that is that David deeply wants the presence of God. Okay, Think about that. that that's, this whole sermon is going to be wrapped around that concept. Do you want to be in God's presence? Okay, And uh, how, how much does that mean to you? How important is that to you to be in the presence of God? Let, let me share with you some things that David said about that from the Psalms. So let's start, let's say, in Psalm 23, verse 6. You know it. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How did, how did David feel about being with God? Okay, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Psalm 61, verse 4. For to you, O God, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 4, let, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings Psalm 63, I say this to my girls. We say it together on the way to school. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, for God's presence. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Behold your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And my favorite, Psalm 1611, what did David say about the presence of God? You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I cannot see how you can top that, okay? Put forth anything in life, anything in history, anything that you're desiring, anything that you want. I can't imagine that it would top the presence of God, which is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. That's the way David felt. David wants to be in God's presence. He wants the presence of God, okay? Why? Because he's seen God's glory. He's seen God's power and his mercy and his love and, and that God is the rescuer, that God's satisfied. Here's what David's going to say over and over and over again in the Psalms. God, nothing will satisfy me but you. 
Nothing will satisfy my soul but you. God, I could go after money. I could go after power. I could go after riches. I I could go after all these other things. But he is completely convinced that nothing will satisfy like the presence of God. Nothing will quench the hunger in his heart. David is convinced that God is the protector. He's the provider. He's the encourager. He's the strength giver. He's the comforter. He's the refresher. He's the forgiver of sins. And David desperately wants to be in the presence of God. That's his passion. To be in God's presence. David was not the kind of guy who woke up on the day of worship and rolled over and said, you know, I've just had a really hard week. I'm just tired, slap out. And you know what? I I, I just want a Pop-Tart and Fox News, and I'm just going to sit here. This is what will satisfy my soul. There's a whole lot of people like that in our community. David was not one of those. And you see a relentless passion through his stumbling, through his mess-ups, through his victories, his defeats. The one constant in David's life is that he desperately wants to be. He is convinced that that is where happiness and joy will be is in the presence of God. Now, the great implication of that in our passage today is that David wants the Ark of the Covenant in his town, in his city, by his house, okay? Now, now, some of you are saying, oh, whoa, you lost me there. What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, let me explain to you what the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark of the Covenant is a wooden rectangular uh, chest uh, covered with gold and plated with gold. It has a grate on the top of it. It's called the mercy seat between which two angels uh, spread out their wings. Uh, this, This Ark was built back in the days of of Moses in the wilderness. It was to travel with the people of God and to be set up in the tabernacle, okay? In Exodus 25, 22, God tells the people, I'm gonna meet you there, okay? That's the thing with the, with the ark. The ark represents God's desire to dwell with his people. Now, if, you, if the picture you've got in your mind is genie in a bottle, you know, God in a box, you know, God lives in this wooden box. No, 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 no. The Bible is very clear. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Psalm 139, you can't get away from him, okay? Go as high as you can. Go in the depths of the ocean. Go anywhere. You can't get away from God. God is everywhere, okay? But what the ark represents is God's desire to dwell with his people. God's saying, I want, I want you to be in my presence. I want to dwell with you. I want you to dwell with me. Okay? In a real way, the ark is a picture of Jesus who would come and actually dwell with us. Okay? You remember how the New Testament describes not the ark of the covenant anymore, but rather God stepping out of the heavens into human flesh to dwell with man. In fact, here's how John describes it in John 1. He says, in the word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, okay? That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes to dwell with with his people, okay? For Christians, it's the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, okay? So God comes to dwell with his people. That's that's the presence of God, all right? So for David, this was the ark, okay? The ark represented the presence of God with his people, and David wants it back. Now you're saying, well, why, why does he not have it in the first place? place. Why does Israel not have it? Well, quick history lesson here, okay? Priest named Eli, uh, he's okay. He has two sons that are just rotten, okay? These guys uh, are immoral. They have sex with the women at the temple. They, 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 um, they're greedy. They take money when they shouldn't. They take things from the worshipers. They should not. These are wicked guys, okay? And so they take the ark out into battle to fight the Philistines because what are they thinking? Man, if we got the ark, nobody can win. Nobody can beat us. We're untouchable. The only thing... 
problem with that was God was not with those guys because of their sin. So they take the ark out. They're slaughtered in battle. They're killed in battle. News gets back to Eli. He's a big guy, can't lay off the Twinkies, falls off the bench, breaks his neck. Uh, Eli's whole family is wiped out in one day, and the Philistines take the ark. Well, the Philistines take it back to their god, Dagon. Have you guys read these stories in 1 Samuel? He takes it back to their god, their temple, Dagon. They put it in there. They're like, "Woohoo! we are the champions. We beat the Israelites. We, our god is greater than, than their god. They close the doors. They go back in the next day, open the doors. And Dagon, their god, is falling on his face in front of the ark. And it's an embarrassing thing when your god falls down. Okay, So you try not to tell anybody about that. They get him all put back up, shine him up and everything. Whew, it was just an accident, earthquake maybe. You know, Shut the doors again, go back in the next day. Dagon is on his face again before the ark. This time, though, his head and his hands are, are, are broken off, okay? That's really bad when your, your God loses his head, okay? And so they've quickly realized this is not a good idea for us to have the ark. They're getting tumors. They're getting sick. And so what they do is they, they have a test. This is really brilliant. They have a test. Okay, it, it, should we have this thing? And then their test is they take two mama cows, and they take them away from their calves, and they pin up their calves outside here, Okay. And they take the mama cows and they hook them onto the, a cart that has the ark on it. Now, now what's normally going to happen if you take two mama cows away from their calves and their calves are bawling? What, mama cows are going straight back to those calves, right? That's not what happens. Those cows take off like NASCAR, okay? I mean, they're pew, right away from the Philistines taking the ark. And they're like, okay, we're not supposed to have this thing. And so the ark takes off. It gets into the house of this guy named Abinadab. And that's where it's set for decades. Interesting fact Saul did nothing to go get the ark. Now, Saul was king for literally decades. Saul doesn't make a move to go get the ark. You know why Saul didn't make a move to go get the ark? Because the presence of God is not that big a deal to Saul. That was one of the reasons he was such a bad king. Some one of the reasons David's such a good king, okay? Because David's passion is to be with God, is to have the presence of God. And so now David, as he becomes king in chapter 5, is when he finally becomes king of all Israel. What's first thing on his list in chapter 6? we got to go get the ark. Takes 30,000 guys with him. 30, can you imagine? 30,000 guys. They go, they go to this guy's house. I'm gonna, they go to get the ark. They put it on a cart. Why'd they do that? I can't tell you exactly, but you know what it would seem to me? That's what the Philistines did. You know, it's a really bad idea when you're just doing what everybody else is doing. It's just not a good idea. But that's what the Philistines did. Maybe it was still on the cart. So they, they take it. And they're, man, they cook up a couple of oxen. They're, they're going out 30,000. I mean, there's, there's ticker tape parade, the band, every kind of instrument imaginable, great rejoicing and singing. And then the oxen stumbles. There's a little pothole in the road. Man, the last thing you want to happen when you're bringing the ark into Jerusalem is for the thing to fall off the cart, right? So Uzzah reaches out to grab the ark to stabilize it so it doesn't fall off. And he's struck dead right there on the spot. David didn't know what to do. He's upset. He's angry. Why would God kill this guy? But he certainly doesn't want to bring it the rest of the way. I, I, I don't wonder if he didn't have very many volunteers after that, you know? I mean, can you imagine if you're the guys around the ark, you know? All of a sudden, you just pulled a hamstring, right? I need out. <laughs> Tell me to take my place, you know? I don't, I don't want to do this, man. That guy just got struck dead. I mean, this is serious business. You don't mess around with God. So, so they pull it into... This guy's house, Obed-Edom. Now, it's interesting. Twice it says this. Verse 11, 
The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his house. Verse 12, And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. All right, now, what happens? It's in this guy's house for three weeks, and what happens? Blessing. Okay? Now, it had to be a high level of blessing. All right? You know why I say that? Because people see it, and word spreads all the way back to Jerusalem that this guy is being blessed. I wonder how that happened. You, know, you ever wonder about stuff like that? Like, how they all know? How they, what, what kind of blessing? You know? I picture it's like harvest time, and everybody knows Obed-Edom's kind of a mediocre farmer. You know, he's got 20 bushel wheat. You know, he gets the ark. They go in there with a combine. It's like 120 bushel wheat, you know. He's, he's just raking it in, you know. His kid cannot hit to save his life, okay. He never has been able to. They go to the t-ball game after the ark's in their house. You know, the kid is cranking him over the fence, you know. I mean, Obed-Edom is known to have kind of a cranky wife. I don't, I'm just making all this up. I don't know. They, they knew he was blessed, you know. Now, all of a sudden, I mean, she's just an adoring wife, you know. I mean, I don't know. But everybody can see, man. This guy has been blessed because of the presence of God in this house. And David's like, I want that. I want it. I want the presence of God in my house. And so David tries again to bring the ark to Jerusalem. One big difference. This is just a good idea. This time, he checks the scriptures. We find this in 1 Chronicles 15. 1 Chronicles is a parallel book to 1 and 2 Samuel. Okay, so you're going to get the same stories, a little different information, not different, just more, okay? More details. And so 1 Chronicles chapter 15, here's what happens. David built a house for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And then notice what he says. And then David said to said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. Now, where did he get that idea that only the Levites are supposed to carry this thing? He finally, should have done it first, looked at his Bible. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Verse 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord your God broke out against us because we, listen, we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring the ark, bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles. The thing had, had rings on the side of it. You slide the poles through. And then the, then the Levites who consecrated themselves carried the ark as Moses had commanded according to the word of God. Okay? Listen. Great application here. You're not going to get the presence of God except according to God's way and rule. Okay? Listen, I hear people tell me all the time. I mean, I'm just amazed. It floors me every time, but it just keeps coming. I just get more and more people come up and tell me, you know, I'll talk to them about the gospel. I'll talk to them about Christ. I'll talk to them about repentance and faith and salvation. And here's what the Bible says. And here's what the Bible says we ought to live. I'm not saying this. I'm saying the Bible saying this. And they will say to me something to the effect of, don't worry about me. I got my own deal. David had his own deal with a cart, too. Ask Uzzah how that worked out, okay? You don't have your own deal, okay? There's one way to God. There's one way to the presence of God, and that is His way. And we all know through our New Testament, His way is Jesus Christ. That's the only way to God. 
You say, well, it's 2014, Pastor. You know, we all know. I mean, man, I, I, you can make that same argument for this. I mean, carts are better than carrying something on a pole, right? I mean, how'd you get here today? How'd you get here? Did, did you hire four guys to carry you on a platform, you know, on poles? Is that how you got here today? No, you got here on a cart, didn't you? With wheels and an engine, right? Carts are better, right? Makes sense. I still think we ought to listen to God, right? We, we, this is God's deal, God's way. And here's the truth that I can't get away from. I am not a good judge of what is important. True? I'm not a good judge of what's important. You're not a good judge of what's important. Okay, you need to realize that about yourself. That's incredibly, incredibly vital today. You're not a good judge of what's important. If we are left to ourselves, you know what we do? We, we place tons of importance on the wrong things, you know? Things that aren't important, that aren't going to matter, we give our lives to and we build up and we spend tons of money on and we emphasize. And then stuff that the Bible says, the Word of God says, is critical, we ignore. That's the plight of humanity. And David did just that the first time with the ark. And so when we think about worship, okay, today we're thinking about being in the presence of God. I think the first thing we can, we can definitely say, two big points here, is that God must be approached with reverence. That was what went wrong the first time. You don't do it your way. You don't do it flippantly. You don't do it the way you think is best. You, you approach Him, not lightly, but you approach Him, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Folks, God's not a buffet line. You don't go through and pick what you want. God's not a vending machine. You don't put your money in and, and keep punch the button. You're not God's equal. Okay, God is the almighty creator God of the universe, the just judge, the consuming fire of holiness. And the only right you have to come to him into his presence is through his, his son, Jesus Christ, his righteous life and his death on the cross. What does it mean for us to come today with reverence? You know, I, I think when we hear reverence, you know what we think? We think funeral. I, I, I do. Solemn face, quiet, hands in the lap. Okay? And, and there's something to that. There's something to something important has happened. I'm showing my respect. Okay, but I actually think that's not a great way to think of reverence. Here, here's the way I would want you to think of reverence. Reverence is when you are incredibly careful to do exactly what God says. That's reverence. Listen, you can come in here with your hands in your lap, quiet, angelic face, and be completely disobedient to God, okay? Reverence is when you are incredibly careful, okay? You look at your life, and you look at the Scriptures, and you look at your life, and you look at the Scriptures, and you're incredibly careful to do exactly what God has said, to live exactly as God has said, to place importance on exactly what God has placed importance. That's what it means to be reverent. To be reverent is to say, God, you're a big deal, and when you speak, God, I am all ears and I am going to do what you said because I trust you and I see you as the God of the universe. As we come, we ought to come with reverence. We ought to come with hearts to say, God, show me. I'm listening. I'm listening and I'll do whatever you say because I trust you. Second of all, we ought to come with celebration. Okay? We ought to come with celebration. I want you to notice verse 12 here. Okay? 
king was told, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom with all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up this time, doing it as God has said, the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, notice, rejoicing. They did it with rejoicing. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. With all his might. Later on, it's going to say in verse 15, with shouting, verse 16, with leaping and dancing. Now, now here's where we go, go wrong, and I'm going to give you an illustration here in a minute that I think is going to help you. It helps me, okay? But if, you, if what you have in your mind is, is David out there doing a ballet routine, you know? David out there grabbing the maidens and doing a little two-stepping. David out there, if you're in the 80s, doing a little break dancing. Okay, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing it, okay? That's not what is happening here. What is happening here is uninhibited expressions of joy, okay? Have you ever seen anybody win the state championship, okay? You know what? The same thing happens every year when you win the state championship. It's a different town, a different team, a different group of people and you don't have to send out any flyers. They instinctively know what to do when they win the state championship. That's what's happening here. What's happening here is that the gospel is so good that forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ, are you hearing this, is so good that the promises of resurrection and eternal life and the new heavens and the new earth, they're so good that a man cannot hold it in. That's what's happening. That's not an unusual thing. Okay? I mean, I see it. I, I, you go to our high school football game and go sit by one of the mothers whose kid is playing. You do that, okay? When their kid catches a pass and runs in the, in the end zone, I'm telling you, 10 men could not hold that mother down, okay? It is coming out. It's coming out. You don't got to tell her what you do. You don't got to teach her. She doesn't have to manufacture it. I mean, it is an, it is an expression of joy. How much more understanding the presence of God that we, through Jesus Christ's righteous life and sacrificial death, have been brought into, folks, that should culminate in joy. You say, well, should we come every time just giggling over with joy? Aren't there times, Pastor, where we come broken over our sin? Aren't there times when we come with broken lives and had a family member die? Aren't there times we come with sadness in our hearts? Yes, but through the ministry of Jesus Christ, through the presence of God, as we come into His presence, we work through that to joy. Isn't that what happens? You come all full of your mistakes and your failures, and you come to Christ into his presence and his forgiveness. Isn't that what David said, Psalm 51, 12? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Friends, it is a celebration to know the goodness of God and what it means to be in his presence. Now, I still think there's a lot of folks, and we've almost made a joke out of this David dancing naked. You know, you ever hear people saying, David dancing naked? First of all, he's not naked. He's got on a linen ephod that's undergarments for a pre. What that is, simply your t-shirt and your shorts, okay? Why why has he got in his t-shirts and shorts? He had his regal robes on, okay? But what does it say? He's dancing with all his might. The guy is singing and celebrating so much that he gets hot, okay? He's got he's to get down to his T-shirt because he's working hard at celebrating the greatness of... He's not making this up. He's not manufacturing it. He knows what the presence of God in his life means, and he is overwhelmed with joy, okay? So, I, I just think... I, I did it as a kid. As a kid, I, I, I pictured in my head... David, you know, you know, he's like spinning around, you know. 
I, I, want, I, want you, I want you to see what I think this looked like, okay? I'm going to show you a New Tribes mission clip, okay? This is Papua New Guinea, okay? I'm telling you, you got to watch the whole thing. It's 20 minutes long. We can't watch it this morning. But let me, get, let me set it up for you. These missionaries go to Papua New Guinea. These guys believe the most horrendous things. They believe their ancestors come back to haunt them. The men wear these scary masks at night uh, in their rituals uh, to dance around. And they tell, they tell everybody that this is, their, this is their ancestors. Women are not supposed to know different, okay? If a woman finds out that it's really neighbor Bob down there with a scary mask on, they strangle the woman. They kill her. So that she can't, I mean, that's their religion, okay? All right, these people, these missionaries come in, and here's what they do. If you came to our God story, they essentially do the God story, okay? They start in, in, in Genesis, and they tell them about creation, God creating the heavens and the earth, and then they go to the fall, and then they go, but here's one difference, okay? They're not tying it to Jesus right away. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, if you came to the God story, I talked about creation and the fall, and but we're always talking about Jesus, too. Okay? They didn't do that. They, they let the whole story unfold for them so that they could get the whole picture, and then they came back and talked about Jesus. So as you watch the whole video, it's amazing. Like when they get to Abraham and Isaac, you know, they did this beautifully. They're like, tell the story of Abraham and Isaac, and then they'll say, and so God told him to sacrifice his son, and he raised the knife. Guys, come back tomorrow. We'll find out what happens. Man, and these villagers are just like distraught. You know, they're like, what's he going to do? You know, God's going to provide. They, they've got this little wind-up tape recorder. They, 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 they tape these things on, and, and you see the villagers standing and winding that over and over again, hearing it again and again, okay? As the story comes to, to, to the New Testament and Jesus begins to be introduced, and, and, Man, they don't miss. They're there at the crack of dawn before the sun comes up, gathered, hundreds of them, okay? They stay late. They bring in sick people on pallets to hear what is going to happen, okay? They're, they're women who are pregnant, having babies. They set up little leaf, big leaf tents right by the story so that the women can give birth and not miss the story. Now, the part I'm going to show you, I'm telling you, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. They've gone through the story, and now they're sharing the gospel. This can be yours. This can be yours. And these people are starting to get it, that this salvation is for me, and this is what it looks like. From all over, responses came like this. I know I was born in sin. I believe Jesus paid for my sin, that he died in my place. He is my sin bearer. I lived in fear, trying to please the spirits, for I knew no other way to be free from sin. But God in His grace has sent you to us. I've heard it and believe the death and blood of Christ is payment for my sin. I believe it, and God has forgiven me. On that day, almost all the village expressed belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a sense of tremendous relief. The Mok are generally a restrained people, but as the gospel sunk in and new believers sensed the liberation from sin, spontaneous rejoicing broke out. Watch what happened. Village believers stating that he too believes that Christ has paid for his sins. Itao, which means it's true or it's good, it's very true. Itao. 
village grammar, rejoicing that he believes. So does she. Different ones giving testimony as to their belief in Christ as their sin bearer. Mark saying that if they really are believing, then God's word says that their sin is forgiven. Itau, it's good, it's true. Spontaneous rejoicing breaks out. This went on for two and a half hours. that Tuesday morning early as I was reading my Bible a friend of mine sent it to me man I just wept that's the good news that too much too much celebration overboard oh but that's not our culture though right that's just that's just tribal culture like we don't do that oh wait this October there's some guys that play a child's game with a stick and a ball. You may have heard of it. It's called baseball. They have a big tournament. And at the end of the tournament, there's a winner. It's called the World Series. Let, let me prophesy. You guys don't usually hear me prophesy, do you? Like, I'm going to tell the future, right? You ready? I'm going to tell it. Get ready. Let me tell you what's going to happen. There's going to be a last pitch. And that pitch is going to decide the game. And the winning team, I'll t- believe this, get this, ready? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The winning team will unload their dugout. They will run onto the field, jumping and leaping and shouting. They will form up into a, a, a pile, and they will jump on top of each other. It will. Think I'm lying? Watch. Just watch. It'll happen. It's happened every year since I can remember. Is the gospel good? Not for everybody. You notice this gal named McCall? I know we don't have a lot of time. I hear you guys zipping up your Bibles. Patient. You get your food. It's coming. This gal named McCall. What do we know about her? Well, here's what we know. The presence of God in the ark is coming to her city. She's not happy. She's not happy. Why is she not happy? Let me give you two reasons that McCall is not happy. Number one, McCall is so impressed with herself that it's hard to be impressed with God. Okay? McCall is a princess. She was born the daughter of the king, Saul, and now she's married to the king, David. And and here's the deal. McCall is embarrassed that David would be in his T-shirt and shorts 
down with the commoners. David, you're, we're the king. We're the king's family. We've got a reputation. We don't do that. We're regal. You see her? She's embarrassed. You're shameless, David. You're down with the vulgar folks. Number one, there's a lot of people who can't be joyful about the gospel. They can't be joyful about God because they're too caught up with themselves. There will be people in every church in America every Sunday who do not come with a heart of joy. You know why? He's caught up with themselves. What do people think of me? I should be this. I should be that. I deserve this. I deserve that. Number two, McCall can't be happy because she got hate in her heart. Now, granted, McCall has had a bad deal, okay? If you go back and read her story, her dad did not do her right, put her in a bad situation. David, I don't know if he's trying to fix it or what. I I think it turns out even worse. This gal's had a rough time. But here's the reality. She needs the presence of God more than anybody. But she can't be happy about it. You know why? Because she's angry with David. There will be people in every church in America, every Sunday, who cannot be happy about the gospel because they're ticked off at somebody. That's reality. They never get that because they're too bound up on the inside over somebody else. I just don't want you to miss it, guys. When McCall criticizes David, he says two things here. Verse 21, And David said to McCall, It was before the Lord. (laughs) He said, Before the Lord. Down at the end of verse 21, I will make merry before the Lord. You know what David says? He said, Look, my worship's between me and God. I want to be happy in the Lord. That's who I'm worried about is, is God. And number two, Verse 22, he says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. You know what David essentially says? He says, man, you ain't seen nothing, McCall. I'm going to humble myself every day. Yeah, I'm the king, but I'm not the king. And I'm going to be on my face. I'm going to be rejoicing. At times, I may look a little undignified, but I'm going to worship the king. I want you to be a worshiper. I want you to be a I want I want you to desire the presence of God more than anything else in your life. Let's pray. Father, give us this kind of heart. God, give us the kind of heart that that longs to gaze upon your beauty, that longs to dwell in your tent forever, that longs to to be with you, to hear from you, to hear your voice. God, give us hearts that leap Lord, that to know you're with us. Father, give us hearts of joy and celebration in the gospel. Father, give us those hearts. In Jesus' name.